In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and please be seated. We are nearing the end of ordinary time in our church calendar, which culminates next Sunday in the Feast of Christ the King. And it's fitting that the culmination of our ordinary time is also a coronation, even though it seems a juxtaposition of regal with ordinary. One thing we know, however, about Jesus' kingship is that it is an ordinary kingship. Not grand, majestic, theatrical. Jesus lives an extraordinarily ordinary life, not a privileged life of glory and power and fortune and fame. He goes to the cross, not to the throne, to suffer, not to reign, to die, not to be immortal. And Christ the King draws all the church seasons, all the feasts, the festivals, the holy days together in the coronation of ordinary time and the ordinariness of our lives. And there is nothing more relentlessly regular and ordinary than time. The second law of thermodynamics says that in any closed system, disorder or entropy always increases with time. As soon as you order something, it starts to become disordered. And I suppose there's nothing more out of our control than time and the disorder that ensues with time's passage. I was reading Stephen Hawking's book about some of this stuff, so, <laughs> so I wouldn't misspeak. We can't suspend time, stop time, speed it up, slow it down. You can't capture time, put it in a bottle any more than you can capture beauty because that trapped moment, that trapped beauty grows withered and without life. Every night I put Mary Kay time-wise age fighting moisturizer <laughs> on the soft paper thin skin under my eyes. It doesn't help. But I think it does, it makes me feel better <laughs> and sleep better. I want to look like what I looked like when I was 30 or 40 or shoot, I'll even settle for 50. <laughs> but I won't stop time and entropy. And this is why we order our days. Psalm 90, that Mike read for us. And, oh no, we, read, we did that together, didn't we? Psalm 90 instructs us to number our days. To number is to also order them and order them in very ordinary ways because as we do so, we trust that God is doing his extraordinary work. Our psalm today instructs us to count our days and I believe this encompasses ordering the days with routines and rhythms and ritual that structure our days and make order of them, and sometimes, and indeed often, in the most, can I say it, boring of ways? <laughs> there is a theology of boredom that Matt Milliner was mentioning to me as when we met this week. We believe that we can get the best of time by doing extraordinarily, extraordinary and sensational and thrilling things, frenetic activities. I mean, who of us aspires to be ordinary, right? We want to be extraordinary. But most often, these can result in exhaustion and emptiness and ultimately despair. Uh, in her book, Holy the Firm, uh, 
read it for many, many years. I got coffee stains all over it. Annie Dillard writes about worshiping at a very ordinary church in Puget Sound. She writes, on a big Sunday, there might be 20 of us there. Often I'm the only person under 16, feel as though I'm on an archeological tour of Soviet Russia. <laughs> the members are of mixed denominations. The minister is a congregationalist and wears a white shirt. <laughs> the man knows God. Once in the middle of the long pastoral prayer of intercession for the whole world, for the gift of wisdom to its leaders, for hope and mercy to the grieving and pained, succor to the oppressed, and God's grace to all. In the middle of this, he stopped and burst out, Lord, we bring you these same petitions every week. After a shock pause, he continued reading the prayer. Because of this, I like him very much. <laughs> He continued reading the prayer. He kept praying. The same prayer week in and week out, ordinary yet, and yet ordering our time, our days, our lives together. And we could say the same of our entire worship experience as Anglicans, our individual and corporate worship, so persistently and doggedly ordinary that we want to sometimes shout out, God, we say the same things every time, but we trust that God is working as we say the same things, doing as extraordinarily different and amazing and varietal things. And we do those ordinary, ordinary things in ordinary time and space. We allow God who is not bound by time and space, but can break into time and space to accomplish the extraordinary. While there is nothing more ordinary than time, there is also more, uh, nothing, I suppose, more extraordinary and mysterious. Ask anyone, what time is it? You will get a ready answer. Well, I hope you do. <laughs> Ask time, what is it? The answer is not so forthcoming. Ordinary time in ordering our lives and our prayer and our worship in ordinary time in ordinary ways is shot through and permeated with mystery and enchantment and wonder. And as we proceed and process through the ritual and the routine, God accomplishes wonders. If we but steep ourselves in the ordinary and pay attention, we will discover that the ordinary is also ephemeral. It's full of reality that is strange and yet familiar, inexhaustible in its fullness and depth. If we but pay attention to the ordinary, Mary, Mary, Marilyn Robinson writes, our attention will never go unrewarded because reality is available to us to the extent that we are present to it. As we pay attention, as we order ourselves in time and through time, time will not change, but we will. There is a strong relation of self to time. Not in the way of entropy, but in the way of growth. So that as we order our time, we do not become disordered. Rather, we become reordered. And in this way, as we count and order the persistent passing of our days, we make our days count. We don't let them pass us by. And for this, our parable of the servants and the talents is instructive. This parable drove me nuts. It's a difficult parable. There are many ways to look at it. And I was struggling with it until I discovered it's key for me, which I will tell you about shortly. And as you read this parable, you might have a different key to open up its mysteries. 
I mean, this parable, if we were talking about making our lives count, this parable is all about counting money. Five plus five equals ten. Two plus two equals four. One plus zero equals one. There are few things, I suppose, more mundane than money and few things more enticing to us. It's only when we become enamored of money that we run into problems. Zephaniah, your silver and your gold cannot save you. When we try to make the extraordinary of something ordinary, when we try to use money as replacement for things that are priceless. So it's intriguing that Jesus builds his parable around money, the giving and making of it, and I believe the money here is a metaphor and the entire parable is an extended metaphor. And the metaphor is about time and what we do in time and not with time because we can't do anything with time. We can, however, do something with money. A master entrusts his property to his servants and goes away. Going away would have meant something quite different to Jesus' listeners than it does to us. When we go away, we can remain connected in any number of ways. Um, I have an iPhone, uh, of course. <laughs> um, Tammy has an iPhone. She finds me via the iPhone, you know, find my phone app so that I can never, ever uh, um, just disappear. Um, and uh, it's a good thing because I tend, to, I tend to get lost anyways, so it's good that someone can find me. Um, but no one can really get away these days. In Jesus' day, going away meant gone. The master is good and gone, absolutely no communication. With the master gone, the two servants are left with his final instructions. And to them, that informs everything they do in his absence. And his final words to them are his ongoing words to them because they do what he last said. And in these words, he remains present to them. But they are not fixated on the master. Or on when he is coming back, they are not counting the days till he comes back because they have no clue. But they do count their days and make their days count. And after a long time, of course, a master comes back. The third servant is very different from these two. He was preoccupied not with the task at hand, but with the master. The first two don't express any thoughts about the master. They show it in their actions. But this one says plenty. He says, I know you are a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You gather the harvest of seed you did not scatter. Furthermore, he says, take what is yours. The inference being that this is what the master does. He takes and what he gives, he takes back. And then this fellow also talks about himself. Very self-conscious. I was afraid. His fear of the master is pervasive in his life. And then he talks about what he does not do with his talent. Fear paralyzes him. Talk about entropy. Consequently, he does nothing and ends up in outer darkness. The servant has entered into the perceived fear of his master, and it's a dark and isolating place. The other two enter into the joy of their master. I mentioned earlier the key that unlocks a parable for me so that it sings to me rather than disturb me. It's the word joy spoken twice to two servants, and the invitation to enter into that joy. And this is not the joy of money. It's the joy of the master. Joy and money don't mix. That is, as we all know, money does not make us happy. Money makes the world go round, but when it makes us go round, it will make us sick, obsessed, 
Money is the very ordinary medium we use, however, to make good things happen. And joy comes when we release money for the sake of others. That's when we also enter into the joy of our master, our king. Because in this way, we image God in his goodness and his kindness to all humanity, which makes possible a different order of human temporality in which our days add up to good years in a round of joyful fulfillment. We had the opportunity last, this past week to release some money for two people in distress. One of them is a friend of mine. For me, for us, it was a paltry amount. For one of them, it was a difference for him and his sick wife between a night spent in misery and cold and a night of true rest. And for the other person, days of stress and anxiety. Well, he tries to transition from an increasingly desperate circumstance to a living situation that for the first time offers him a glimmer of hope. I was texting him and the joy in his text. What I felt was not self-satisfaction. What I felt was, was joy with them and for them. And God is so good that we can give out of our abundance and enter joy while others give out of their need for the same joy. Sarah Gordon, who visited students at Kenyago Dandora School in Africa a while ago, wrote a stirring piece for our youth on our walk a treat night to raise money for the KDS kids whose school year starts in January. Thank you for all of those of you who contributed to that, by the way. They're so grateful. Sarah wrote, I have everything and I complain about my life. They have nothing, but they share it with people who don't need it at all. They are the poorest of the poor, but they have more joy in Jesus than I have ever put on display. And it's so hard to explain. You have to witness it. You have to go to Africa. <laughs> and as one of those kids said, we have Jesus. And Jesus is very enough. Indeed. And amen. Amen.